And now it is my pleasure to introduce our 2022 Holtzgang Scholar, Dr. Marion Hodges. Dr. Hodges is the Bain Chair of Geriatric Medicine and Regional Medical Director for the Senior Health Program. Since 1992, she has maintained an active clinical practice as a board certified geriatrician in the Providence Medical Group and has served as a member of the faculty for the Providence Portland Internal Medicine Residency. In 2003, Dr. Hodges became the first woman president of the Providence Portland professional staff and served in that role until 2005. She also participated as a clinical leader on the Oregon Community Ministry Board for over 15 years. In 2005, Dr. Hodges joined the staff of the Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics to deepen her focus on ethics and palliative medicine education. While there, she was a part of the leadership team that started the Connections Palliative Care Program. In 2011, she received Providence Foundation support to work on a tool to help support families of patients with dementia. That tool turned into the book, Help is Here, When Someone You Love Has Dementia, co-written with Ann Hill, who's also here with us today, the daughter of one of Dr. Hodges' patients. In 2016, Dr. Hodges was nationally honored with the Hastings Center Cuniff Dixon Physician Award in recognition of her leadership in advancing the art of medicine for patients near the end of life and for their families. And to be there back in 2016 was such a momentous celebration for both Providence and Marion. And finally, in my judgment, Marion epitomizes the confluence of wisdom, integrity, and compassion while our tenure at the center did not overlap, she clearly was and remains a signal bearer of the culture of ethics at Providence. We could all do well to model the attributes of those rare medico-moral wizards that we have the privilege to encounter. Consider this an invitation to spend the remainder of this hour learning from Providence's finest. Please help me welcome Dr. Marion Hodges. Wow, Kevin, thank you so much. Um, well, for those of us who've been at Providence for more than a few years, and I, I clearly have from those um, pictures on the slide there, I do wanna say just, just a few words about Dr. Holtzgang because he is an icon for so many of us. Uh, what he did at St. Vincent's in terms of wonderful medical education of our residents, inspiring them to be the best doctors they can be, and as Kevin said, making our ethics center happen. And today we miss his wife, Darylin Holtzgang, uh, who not only supported his family and, and Dr. Holtzgang, the four sons, um, but she also really was a woman of providence. So she supported the ethics center. She was really part of our family. So um, thank you, Kurt, for being here as well. Well, being invited to give the 20th Holzgang Lectureship, I mean, this is really special to me. Uh, I did work, as Kevin said, at the Ethics Center for about 10 years as a physician ethicist, and I was involved in bringing to Portland many really wonderful Holzgang lecturers in my tenure at the Ethics Center. And, and these three were free, three of my favorites. Uh, Dr. Richard Payne from Duke, 
In 2005, Dr. Nula Kenny from Dalhousie uh, University, Nova Scotia, in 2006, and, and Sandra Johnson, a legal expert. Can you imagine? A legal expert was one of my favorites uh, in 2007. I say that jokingly because I worked with Ann Hill, as many of you know, for much of my career, and, and she is a retired lawyer. But, but at the Ethics Center, we would bring these wonderful, brilliant guests, and I was inspired by many of them. And to so be in that tradition today is such an honor for me. Um, and thank you, Ethics Center, for inviting me. This is really special. Well, the first part of my talk today is going to be a history lesson. As in looking back over the last three decades, uh, it's truly remarkable the changes that medicine has gone through and that Providence has gone through as an organization. And some of the changes definitely are for the better and some not so much. And I do believe now that we're at an important juncture, not just because healthcare is struggling financially in ways I've never seen it struggle before, but also because the practice of, of medicine right now is, is really hard. Patient care has gotten harder, more exhausting, and even sometimes um, not as meaningful as it was before. But I am a, I'm a positive person. I'm a hopeful person. And I do think that virtue ethics uh, can point a way forward for us. And so I'm gonna share a few insights from that field today. Now, for those of you who just entered medical practice since 2010, it is hard to even imagine the world of paper that we used to live in. I could say so much just about this change alone, which began in the late 90s with the first electronic medical record in our clinic. But to think in 1992, we used to have physical charts located in the clinic on the hospital floor, in the ICU, and you could not access that chart anywhere unless you were physically standing in front of it to either read it or write in it. And that meant that you were walking miles of steps every day just to go back and check that chart to see what pieces of paper had been put in there since you were last there. So that meant which new lab reports, which new consultant notes, which by the way, you may not be able to read because the handwriting was so terrible. Uh, which new imaging reports, CT scans, x-rays, which new EKGs? It's a revolution that now we can access a patient's chart anywhere, 24-7. You can be in your home, you can be in Idaho, you can be in Boston. It's, it's truly a revolution. Now, in this slide up in the top left is a copy of one of my last physical chart notes from 2011 when I was on the connections team that I, I kept as a memento. This was the year before we all migrated to Epic in 2020, 2012 rather. And the other thing I wanted to mention is we didn't have the internet in 1992. You could not access up to date or an online medical book. And so I carry a copy of the Washington Manual on this side in my white coat pocket so that I could look up the doses for the antibiotics for this person with pneumonia because I couldn't commit everything to memory. That was impossible. And when the Washington Manual failed me, which sometimes it would, it was a small spiral bound notebook, I would dash back to my office and I would open a textbook. Can you imagine a textbook? The Principles of Internal Medicine by Harrison's, that was our Bible, and I would go to that for more complex cases. 
I would also curbside the many brilliant physicians in the hallways that I would pass on my countless trips back and forth. But yeah, no Google, no search engine. So another major change that's happened in the last three decades is to our institution of Providence. The picture on the bottom left is of PPMC the year before I joined. Providence used to be city-states like ancient Greece. You joined one as a PCP and, and PPMC, Providence Portland uh, and St. Vincent's, those were the largest in Portland. So often it was one of those two. And you had nothing to do with anything outside the walls of your clinic or the walls of the hospital that you admitted patients to. Providence had no overarching presence as a company. The office up in Seattle had really no power over us in our city state. It was all local. It was all self-sufficient within. And it was pretty homey. I mean, I knew our chief executive at Providence Portland by his first name. I knew most of the consultants that I referred patients to by their first names. But starting in 2001, there was a, a new process of regionalizations where the hospitals began to connect to each other over policies and procedures, over their medical staff and sharing them. And I'm sure there were lots of reasons for this, like economics being a major driver, but simultaneously the system office grew in power and influence. And it's, it's to me amazing that now coming to work at Providence, joining it, for instance, in 2022 as a new provider, it's not joining a city state. We are now a $25 billion corporation in seven states, the seven states in the dark gray here. And for me, that that is a, a big change, this, this hugeness now that Providence is. Well, back in the 90s, um, you also had three main kinds of physicians in the hospital. You had primary care providers, surgeons, and medical subspecialists. And this meant that the PCP followed a patient of theirs who was admitted to the hospital everywhere. If they went to the, from the clinic to the hospital floor, you saw them on the hospital floor. If they deteriorated and went to the ICU, you went to the ICU. If you were on call and the patient deteriorated in the middle of the night, so that there they were on the hospital floor and their blood pressure bottomed out and they had to go to the ICU, I would be called physically to leave my home and go to the ICU and write orders on that patient. Now, that meant, if you're thinking as a PCP, that you had to be an expert in outpatient medicine, inpatient medicine, and critical care medicine in the 90s. And that was not a sustainable existence, particularly as over that decade, medical therapeutics, advances in technology, burgeoned. I mean, the world exploded in new things in medicine, not to mention the computer. And as all of that happened, inpatient medicine changed. So in 1999, our first hospitalist service at PPMC started, which meant that now as a PCP, I could admit to an inpatient hospitalist who would follow my patient in the hospital. I didn't have to run from home into the hospital at night and they would follow the patient into the ICU. A decade later in 2012 at PPMC, we had our first intensivists who were responsible for ICU care 24 seven. 
So, so this change of going from PCP doing it all super doc to having these three groups of providers, this is a huge change and I'm going to come back to it later. But I also want to add one other thing that so far I've been really focused on the word physician. It wasn't really until 2000 that we began to have nurse practitioners and physician assistants also in the hospital and the clinic. And that too was an important change. Now, part of the culture when the PCP um, in the 90s routinely went to the hospital was there were there were no hospitalists and you stop for lunch or you stop for coffee in one of the physician hangouts. Uh, we actually had of physician lounges at PPMC. This is, I could not find a picture of the old PPMC lounge. I looked for it. So this is a stock photo up on top here, but, but we had a lounge and we also had our own dining room. Yes, that meant we had our own hot food line with trays. We sat in a separate room apart from the rest of the hospital employees and the patients and the families. When I came to PPMC and joined the faculty there, I was the second woman in our faculty. St. Vincent's at that time had actually had no women faculty. They got those later. I was the second and I was pretty, shall we say, not really interested in going to the doctor's dining lounge. It wasn't a very comfortable place for me. I would walk inside and there might be one other woman attending because there were so few at PPMC at that time. It was mostly white older men. I was. 35, they were older, virtually no people of color. But my boss at the time, Mark Rosenberg, he encouraged me. He said, Marion, you got to go there once a week. You got to get to know people. Just just do it. And so over the 90s, I did do it. And I got to know many of those physicians quite well. And as it turned out, they became really formative in my career, those relationships. Now, why does this matter? It matters because of what is on the bottom of this slide because as the hospitalist service started at PPMC, the practice of primary care changed dramatically. We no longer went to the hospital. And so now as PCPs, we can go through a whole day seeing patients going from room to room and never talk to another physician, never talk to another provider. We're, bur we're buried in our computer, uh, charting, making phone calls, doing work with faxes. But the past of seeing people and having that informal collegiality in the hallways and in the and in the hospital lounges. We don't even stop for lunch anymore. Primary care has gotten a lot more lonely. I want to think and I don't know the hospital world anymore. I want to think that they have more community because they are seeing people, but not not in primary care. And and the other seismic shift I want to mention is the is the sisters. Now the top picture is of Sister Karen Defoe and she was an oncology nurse here at St. Vincent. And she is now the mother superior of the Sisters of Providence. She is now the heiress to Emily Gamlin sitting uh, in the mother house in Montreal. But she was once a nurse here, everybody. This is important history for you to know. And when I came to Providence in the 90s, we didn't have as many sisters on our floors as there were in the 60s and 70s, but they were visible. 
and they were important visible reminders of the mission of the Sisters of Providence. And I'm going to read you that mission statement. It's two sentences. Providence Health System continues the healing ministry of Jesus in the world of today with special concern for those who are poor and vulnerable. Working with others in a spirit of loving service, we strive to meet the health needs of people as they journey through life. And so now we have very few visible sisters. I know we have Sister Linda Thompson here at, at St. Vincent, but boy, we have very few. But many of us came to work at Province because of this mission. We came to work here and not at Legacy and not at OHSU and not at Kaiser because we believed in that mission statement. It made us feel that we were part of something bigger than just the business of healthcare. And this wasn't just physicians. This was everybody. This was people from dietary to people working in the clinic to housekeeping. And losing their presence in the hallways, I know it's made a difference. I know it's made a difference and it's hard to say how much. But this recent article in the New York Times from a few weeks ago that many of you saw made me wonder how great a loss it's been that the sisters aren't among us now. Would there have been a practice, a billing practice of rev up named in the article of asking for money from people with limited means who came to us in huge need, came to deliver a baby, came to the ER super sick when they couldn't take it anymore at home. And yet when they couldn't pay, we sent debt collectors after them demanding payment, even if they qualified for charity care which is supposedly what we're all about when people of means are eligible, limited means. And so I'm not going to get into the official response from Providence since this article came out. But for me, this billing policy was not a policy inspired with Emily Gamlin as your guidepost or Mother Joseph. This article, whatever really happened in those billing practices was not my Providence was not the providence I came to when I first joined and in my years thereafter. So it's all lost. No. no, but right now it does feel really hard. Looking back over these three decades, there, there have been positive steps forward, but, but right now, speaking as a PCP, I'm really worried. I'm worried about the future of primary care. I feel like we've lost our community. I feel like now uh, we're too isolated. And the changes in Providence with it getting so much bigger, the loss of the sisters, I feel like, like our community is, is not what it was. But, but let me turn to something that I think might help us. Not just PCPs, but everybody, because the pandemic has just just increased our our suffering. And this is an ethics lecture, so let me let me time. It's time for me to turn to ethics. So I was trained. In rule based ethics when I got my master's of clinical ethics at University of Washington uh, in the early 90s before I came here and rule based ethics, it's pretty easy to understand when you're in a clinical conundrum in a situation with a patient where you're not sure what is the right option for going forward. You're trying to pick the most right 
option. And we were taught in clinical ethics that these four principles would help guide your way to help you choose the most right option. And so let's let's take an example. Here is a straightforward yet common case. 42 year old woman comes to your office with what seems to be a cold. Your exam doesn't reveal pneumonia. You're pretty sure that that's what's going on and you tell her that rest, Tylenol, drink fluids, that's the way to go. But she says, Dr. Hodges, I want an antibiotic. I am positive my cough is going to get worse and that I'm going to need that in the next few days. I mean, I've been through this before and I have a big work engagement next week and I cannot be sick. Now, you know you're in an ethical dilemma when you begin to get a little sweaty. You begin to feel, you know, your, your stomach begin to churn. And so here you are and you're like, well, now what do I do, right? And so here's the conundrum. The patient is asking for something that you would not usually prescribe for a cold. And so in rule-based ethics led by um, Beauchamp and Childress, there are four principles that you would dissect as you were trying to figure out what to do next. So let me run through this, this briefly. So with autonomy, in this case, the patient is telling you they want the antibiotic. That's their preference. And it's important for us to respect patient preferences. But beneficence would tell you to do the right thing by the patient. And uh, antibiotics are not the treatment for a standard cold. There is no known benefit for a virus with an antibiotic. With non-maleficence, that's the principle of doing no harm to a patient. Well, an antibiotic might do harm. You could cause an antibiotic-associated diarrhea, Clostridium difficile. They could be super sick because of that antibiotic. And then finally, justice. Prescribing an antibiotic here would not be standard of care. How would you feel if you had a medical student with you? and they were watching you doing something that was not standard of care because the patient said they wanted it. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay if your colleagues all knew about that? So in rule-based ethics, you look at where the principles point you, the majority of principles, and here three of them, the vector is all behind those three pointing you not to give the antibiotic. And so you would be ethically justified saying to the patient, no, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. I'm not even sure that you're going to Get the cough you're worried about, but we'll deal with it when the time comes. But what about the character of the clinician? Are you, are you even thinking about that in a situation like this? Not usually. We usually think that clinicians are acting on the best interests of the patients. We're not thinking that this clinician is choosing what they're doing because if uh, they don't give an antibiotic, they might get a kickback. They might get more money. We're not thinking that. But virtue ethics, um, I think, are important for us to think about. Not necessarily for that case, but I want to spend some time explaining what they are. Because I think they're important for where we're going in the future. Virtue ethics are about character. It's beyond decisions and the deeds to the characteristics of the agent. Because there's a difference between what we do, our actions versus our motives, why we do it. Virtue ethics looks at motives. Aristotle said an action can be right without being virtuous, 
but an action can only be virtuous if performed in the right state of mind. And in healthcare, virtues derive primarily from being in relationship to others, to patients and to clinicians. Now, we want as providers, as, as physicians, to promote an ethic of caring, which Carol Gilligan first described in the 1970s. And that ethic of caring means to promote the welfare, the good of another, willing to act on behalf of someone else, which is what patient care is all about. Beecham and Childress and their principles of biomedical ethics, that rule-based ethics tone that I first studied, they didn't have a character, they didn't have a chapter on, on virtue ethics till about 2003, their fifth edition. We're now in their eighth edition. But when they did include that chapter, these were the five virtues that they thought we should be thinking about in the practice of medicine. And they thought that these were the most essential for a healthcare professional. And yes, there are other virtues. There's honesty, there's patience, there's modesty. But today I'm going to concentrate on the five core virtues of, Be of, of Beauchamp, didn't mean to mispronounce that, Beauchamp and Childress, which are accepted in the canon of literature uh, even today. So compassion, that's Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War. I think we know compassion when we see it. Compassion is the active regard for someone else's welfare, which is shown in acts that are to alleviate the suffering of someone else, particularly with an emotional response of kindness and sympathy. Compassion is not empathy. Empathy is when we imagine someone else's experience, we kind of imagine being that person, but it's not sufficient because what's sufficient, what's really needed is that, is that humanizing response of kindness, of tenderness, of sympathy, which empathy alone cannot guarantee. And so compassion for all of its good, if it's not balanced, it may cloud our judgment. We may look at somebody in horrible pain and, and because of our compassionate response, say, you know, they're asking for prescription pain medicines. I'm going to give them that prescription because they just look so awful. But that might not be the right thing to do. And it's also true that if you're in constant contact with other people's suffering, which has been true during COVID, that we can be overwhelmed. Our compassion source within us can dry up. We call that compassion fatigue. And that can be a challenge. But I don't think any of us would disagree that compassion in, in clinicians is one of the most important virtues. Compassion is ideally accompanied by discernment, the virtue of discernment. And discernment is that capacity to choose the wisest course of action in a very difficult situation while having some emotional detachment. It's being able to look at that patient in horrible pain and saying, you know, I could give that pain medicine because they're asking for it and I want to alleviate their suffering, but I don't think that's the right way to go. I'm going to order physical therapy or acupuncture. Aristotle called this phrenesis. He recognized discernment. And that translates into practical wisdom. And that's definitely an important virtue in clinicians. Some think this is the most important, trustworthiness. 
It presupposes that you're competent, that you know what you're doing. But beyond that, you're dependable. You're dependable, that you're committed to goods beyond your own needs to helping the person in front of you, that the care team can rely on you, that your patients can rely on you. And this doesn't happen like that. This is a, a virtue that that grows over time. People have to see you over and over again being dependable. You can be compassionate in a single moment, in a single encounter. But but trustworthiness is earned over time. Integrity. Integrity is really complicated. There's personal integrity, there's professional integrity. There's Mr. Rogers. Um, you also know this when you see it. Beauchamp and Childress describes two aspects of integrity that were faithful to moral norms. Yes, but beyond that, that were willing to stand up for those moral norms. And defend them if necessary publicly. Even in the midst of adversity. So for instance, I may have a patient in front of me. Who I think, you know, they really shouldn't be driving anymore. My clinical judgment says that that it's time for them to stop. But the patient in front of me says. Dr Hodges, I have to keep driving. I mean, driving is is what I need to do. I can't imagine being marooned at home. And so my professional integrity, my 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 faithfulness to the standards of my license and to the community, the public safety of the community is I'm like, well, I understand that. But we're going to have to work together on how you get places because I do need to report you to the DMV. Now during COVID, we had lots of threats to our professional integrity. We had patients and families who didn't want to wear masks. We had patients and families who insisted on ivermectin when we had no evidence to support its use. We had lots of, of times where standing up for what we thought was right was really challenged. That was super hard and continues to be hard. Oh, I got ahead of myself. Here's Mr. Rogers. Uh, conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is a form of self-reflection on our actions as good or bad, right or wrong, virtuous or not, but but it's it's acting with intention. It's carrying ourselves um, to do something after we've weighed it and decide it's the right thing to do. But it's also, I would say, part of us being um, in, in an enterprise that's bigger than ourselves. It's committing to the standards of our profession. It's saying, yes, I believe in the values and the convictions of the practice of medicine and my peers, and I'm willing to really consider what I do to uphold those values. Now, there are acts of conscience when we might say no to somebody else who's asking something of us, but that's that's different than conscientiousness. It's important, but it's different. So I've introduced you to the five virtues of virtue ethics, and you might wonder why? Where is this going? Well, we live in challenging times. And I think that uh, we don't see a lot of virtue displayed on the national stage and, and even, you know, we have pockets locally, but but we might sometimes yearn to see more. But I think it's important for us to recognize that clinicians grow in virtue by having role models 
of other virtuous clinicians. That we grow in, in virtue when patients call us to be our best selves, when they ask us to call us back and expect us to, and we do it. We grow in virtue by discussing patients with each other and learning. And it isn't really possible to learn virtue from a computer or from a, just a conference. Uh, but our patients, you know, our patients want us to have these virtues. Our colleagues want us to have these virtues. We want our colleagues to have these five virtues. And I think we want our institution to have these virtues. We want to feel like we're in a moral enterprise that cares about character. Now, when I think about my moral development as a doctor over 30 years here, I trace it back, to be honest, to that lounge, to that dining room I didn't want to go to, and uh, to these four physicians and others who really were part of my moral development here. Now, it's true that as children and as young adults, we learn about these virtues. It's not like it starts when we're 30, but it's different, these virtues, when someone else is in need and dependent on you and sick. These virtues are, are grown and need to be nurtured in a different way when you're responsible for the welfare of someone else. Now, I had other people besides these four wonderful physicians as, as part of my moral development. I had fantastic nurses. I had surgeons. I had my colleagues in medical education. Uh, and so by all means, uh, it was more than Dr. Patterson, Maunder, Walta, and Wernick, although they were critical to me. But how I take care of patients, how I um, prescribe the therapies I give now, to be honest, it wasn't anything I learned in the 90s. Medical care has totally changed, right? But my character, how I was shaped professionally by these individuals, that has endured. So we talked about rule-based ethics. It's, it's, yes, we want to do the right thing by our patients. But for me, medicine, you know, it's not just been about doing the right thing. It's been about what's my character? Who am I bringing to each and every encounter that I have? It's been a moral journey of both doing the right thing and character. Now, they're landmines. They're landmines. I'm going to talk about this case, although there are multiple other examples I could have given. So say there's a 96-year-old woman with end-stage dementia, a pacemaker, placed years ago. And last year, she's had more suffering, strokes, and the daughter really believes her mother would not want to live this way. She would not want to have her life prolonged. And she says, is the pacemaker prolonging her life? Because if so, I want this turned off. She would not want this. And you listen to her and you agree. You know, this is keeping her alive. This is this is like life sustaining therapy. And if she would not want this, we do not have to keep it. And so you write the order to turn off the pacer. But a specialist colleague criticizes you, says that we don't do that. And you're like, huh, what? And you want to support the daughter. I mean, you've you've thought about this. You think this makes sense that this promoting their goals. 
But then you go home and you're like, wait, was I a good doctor for turning this off? And so when it comes to antibiotics for a cold, you know, we don't really think about the moral character of the provider. But when it comes to decisions that affect life and death, we do. We do. And when our colleagues criticize us, that's hard. And if you go home and you go to work the next day and you have nobody to talk this over with, we are left to our own internal voices and we worry. And we think, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe next time I won't, maybe. And then maybe we become more cynical. Maybe we lose our compassion. Maybe we get more burnt out for being moral. So before I talk about concrete ways for you all to think about building virtue ethics in your everyday life, I do want to talk about the importance of other role models besides clinicians. There are amazing examples of virtue ethics everywhere in our places of healthcare, and some of the greatest examples have been administrative leaders. We sometimes call them servant leaders. What is a servant leader? Well, a servant leader is a leader who puts the community before their own needs. They take those five virtues and they don't apply them to the patient by the bedside because they're not doing that. They think about patients writ large, the patients in their hospital and their welfare. They think about the welfare of their employees. They live out the actions, they live out through their actions, I should say, the mission of the Sisters of Providence. And two really important servant leaders in my 30 years here, Dave Underreiner, the former CEO of Providence Portland, and then became the first CEO of Providence, Oregon, as we were a new region, and Sister Rita Fershweiler, former CEO here at Providence St. Vincent. And servant leaders, they make tough decisions that maybe are not very popular. They make decisions to cut programs. They make decisions to move St. Vincent from downtown Portland to the West Hills, to farm country, where like there's no people and everybody's going, Sister Rita, what? What? But if the servant leader is someone that you trust, which is part of what a servant leader is, and you know that they have your welfare at heart, you follow them. You follow them. And right now at Providence, we don't, we don't have as much servant leadership visible here as when I started here. I don't sense the same trust in our leaders as we used to have. And I really yearn for Providence to have more abundant servant leadership. We need it. Okay, so my last part of the talk is how to do virtue ethics in everyday practice. So in healthcare, Virtues derive from being in relationship to others. I've said that. You can be practicing solo. You don't have to be in a group practice, but you need to be connected to others, either through your professional organization or through some other network. But overall, the goal is lifelong nurturing of these shared commitments because they can ebb. Virtues don't necessarily just keep going on their own. They need to be nurtured over time and they can be eroded if your team is not committed to them. I mean, think about when you're a parent. You say, oh, I don't want my kid to get in with the wrong crowd. Right? 
That's your worry that their virtues that you've been trying to instill may be eroded. And so here's some examples. Many of you know Schwartz rounds. That has been our hospital rounds where we've had a chance to get together and talk about really challenging situations in the hospital. Often it's a patient very, very sick here in our hospital for weeks, many people involved, their therapeutic dilemmas, their ethical dilemmas, and this is a time for us to debrief that and say, wow, you know, what are the learnings we can take away? And, and also for people to relive the struggle, to relive the struggle. And it's a great source of balm for hospital-based clinicians. I think we need to do something like this in the clinics because we don't have anything like this in primary care. I think we need to have a place where we talk about really challenging patients and we know who they are in our practice. They may be the unhoused. They may be the chronically ill who, who call all the time because they have no family support. But I think we can we can think about doing that. We could do a monthly clinic or team lunch. And, and I think this is particularly important when I think about young clinicians. I think that they need to hear how we discuss our decision-making process, how we wrestle with things, what guides us, what principles. I think it's especially important that we mentor uh, new providers that they have one person that they can meet with maybe monthly at least, maybe more often. And we're not just discussing quality improvement targets, coding for billing. We're actually discussing patients. We spend so much time in our practice meetings talking about epic improvements and changes, talking about Medicare billing, talking about all sorts of things other than patient care, how, um, why we came into medicine to begin with. We don't really talk about values. We don't talk about the mission. We don't talk about virtues. Not really. I think, I think we should be. In my own experience as the senior health medical director, our geriatric mini fellowship, which we launched in 2018, I think it's been an example of virtue ethics, but we did not intend that. We set out to have a curriculum for primary care providers to learn geriatric medicine over four weeks for PMG providers. And there are four weeks in a six month period. Each week is focused on one of the M's of the age friendly uh, healthcare principles. And we knew that we needed to do this because there are never going to be enough geriatricians. There just won't be enough of people like me. And so we have to geriatricize primary care. And this fellowship, we've drawn PCPs from Portland, from Medford, from Hood River, from Newburgh, and uh, they are entirely released from their practice for their four weeks. They're with us from eight to four, Monday through Friday, me and my faculty. I have led this, co-directed this with Colleen Casey, the associate director. Uh, of our senior health program. And um, we discuss patient care. Yes, we teach them new concepts, but we discuss cases. We discuss clinical medicine. And what we found was really surprising after we uh, 
surveyed our first cohort that graduated. They said this connected me back to the heart of medicine. They told us in our surveys that they were less burnt out. They told us that they felt more energized. And a year later, they were more confident and satisfied with their practice of medicine still than at the time that they left the fellowship. And so why? And that's not what we had as our goals for the fellowship. It was all about geriatric medicine. But this, well, I think it grew their competence and confidence. Yes. And I think it opened their eyes to how to be compassionate to older adults in ways they hadn't thought of before and to those families of those older adults. I think it showed them how to have practical wisdom in making clinical decisions about persons with dementia. I think it showed them how to um, just think about patient care in new ways, yes. But I also think that for the first time since these people went into practice, they had a community. They had six other providers that they had lunch with Monday through Friday. They got to sit in a room and talk to other primary care providers, which they really hadn't done since they started going from, from one exam room to another. It was a communal experience that gave them connection with other colleagues. Now, Dr. Rosenberg, Mark Rosenberg on this slide, hired me to come to work 30 years ago at Providence. He's been my number one role model for virtue ethics throughout my career. And during the pandemic, we saw further erosion of our community and our provider team at PMG Northeast as we became so stressed about day-to-day -day work. And what Mark did was he said, let's have an hour every week that we connect on Teams virtually and we don't have any agenda. He called it connecting conversations. And wherever people were in that week, our providers at PMG Northeast, we would log on and we would talk to each other about our struggles with the pandemic, about our worries, about the future, about how are we managing these patients in all of this gear. We talked about it. We talked about our suffering. And although with my schedule, I had a hard time joining these sessions, I know from my colleagues how this sustained them through the pandemic. We're still doing this meeting, not as frequently, but they're still connecting. And my last example for today of virtue ethics that I want to talk about is, is this. I, you know, I think I was motivated to do this talk in part um, in reflecting not only about my early years here at Providence, but and, and what sustained me, but also about what has sustained me in the in the pandemic. And I think when I was reflecting, I, I was surprised by what I thought about. Four years ago, I hired a geriatric nurse practitioner to take over my practice when I retire, which is soon. It's a month from now. And yet when I hired her, I was really kind of worried. I was like, wow, she's a new nurse practitioner. She's going to sit in an office with me. Am I going to have the time to really talk to her about all the questions she's going to have? How is this going to be for me? I'm already so busy. Am I going to resent? Am I going to resent having her there? And on the contrary, my relationship. She's put up with my mess. Um, my relationship with Mary Beth Kiebrick, um, 
has really helped sustain me. We, yeah, we talk about cases when she's troubled. Uh, and even, you know, we talk about cases when she's not so troubled, just to talk about geriatric cases. We love that. And that was the original goal we had, to talk about her problems or her concerns. But over time, I started talking about my patients and what I was worried about. And, and should I do this, Mary Beth, or should I do that? And so we have problem solved together. We inspire each other. We have connected. And this has helped give my work meaning, this relationship over the last four years. I didn't realize how much I needed to connect with someone else to help feed my art of medicine and what it means for me to be a good provider. Has it been more of my time? Yes. Do I think of it that way? Uh-uh, not at all. No, because this, this has been about meaning. This has nurtured me. So in closing, I ask you to really reflect on how you get meaning. And after this talk, what is your next step? I think for all of us, we want to be virtuous healthcare professionals, but it is a lifelong journey. So how do we commit as individuals? How do we think about our clinic practice or our hospital team and how it can have more of these five virtues? How do we think about big providence and how we can help providence to be more virtuous? I think it's really in large part by creating communities. I think our community needs more connection. How do we do that? And I don't have the answers. I don't have all the answers. I've given you some examples, but I think that even though healthcare feels really hard right now, and I know that way more needs to be done to help it than what I have talked about today. I really believe that this is a big piece of it for us to survive as a profession. So when you leave here today, before you get totally tangled in your to-do list and buried in Epic, I am commissioning each of you especially the clinicians in the audience, to write down the one thing that you're thinking about right now before you forget it. That's your homework. I've been a teacher for 30 years. I can do that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hodges. I hope that this has been an opportunity for us to uh, not only benefit from Marion's wisdom, her experience, but also her integrity, but also to hold a mirror to each of us, to our health system and to healthcare more broadly so that we can take those steps to derive meaning from our practices. And with that, I'm guessing at least one or more of you may have a question that you'd love to ask and uh, begin maybe even sensing out your homework assignment real time with your colleagues. Dr. Holtzkin. First of all, thanks very much, Marianne. That was outstanding. Okay, that, that was outstanding. And, and I think that two things that are so important and are 
big complaints uh, that I hear from non-medical people. I just don't have the same relationship I used to have with my doctor. Professionalism is so important. I have a feeling that when I've discussed it with doctors before, that a lot of times they aren't allowed time to establish those relationships, and that does take time. And it uh, means so much in the care of the patient. The patient has to have that trustworthiness, as you say. The second thing I would say is that you mentioned uh, leadership in hospitals. Uh, I was fortunate to be here when uh, first hired by Tom Underinder, Dave's uh, father, and then uh, Greg Van Pelt and Don Elson. Ken Melvin and or I would take a problem to them that related to improved education or improved patient care. We never got an absolute no. It was, if they weren't sure, let's see if we can do it. The point being, they had the ability here where it's happening and understanding the whole circumstance to make a decision. And I'll tell you, they were great decisions. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a great example, Dr. Holtzgang, of um, the relationship that you just described of the of you and Dr. Melvin uh, with the CEO of St. Vincent's then and how you could work together, how important that was to move things forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. And you mentioned great people, Don Elsom, Greg Van Pelt. Uh, Tom Underiner, Dave Underiner's father. Yes, thank you. I, I knew all those gentlemen. Other questions? Don't make me ask the next question. It's going to be ethics about Aristotle and virtue ethics. <laughs> They're all deep in thought. It's okay, Kevin. <laughs> And I'd like you to reflect maybe a little bit more on the community aspect. Dr. Holtzgang touches on this as well. Uh, one of the, the statements that you made in the talk that's really stuck out with me is being a moral enterprise that cares about character. Uh, that's something I'll sit with. Maybe some of us will sit with too. How, what's the first step that we can take? Not just the homework assignment and reflecting on what brings us meaning, but what are the concrete steps that you might see before us that we can help create that moral enterprise that cares about character in our day-to-day -day work? Well, um, it's a good question. And, and I know that for me, and I think for almost everybody here, the computer has been a real mixed blessing, right? So instead of having to run back and forth to a physical chart all the time, now it is something that I can open 24-7. I can't just leave it at the hospital or in the clinic. And, and so I think that the only way that we're going to be more open to community is to figure out how to get our arms around Epic. I, I think that um, it's dragging so many of us down because the work never ends. And it used to have an ending. It used to have, I mean, it was easier. It was hard to have a balanced life as an adult with a family and a job, 
but today it's a lot harder than it was. Um, and and so I I don't have the answers, Kevin, to your question. I wish I did, but I I think that you know I'm on the brink of retirement. I look at Mary Beth. I look at my senior health team. I want them to not leave medicine. I think we have so many wonderful clinicians who are considering early retirements because they have lost that connection to community. And so I really beg all of you guys, we've got to figure this out. We can't be a slave to something that's going to make us lose the joy of medicine and lose our connection to this as a moral journey. Because if it's not a moral journey, if it's just a business, if this is just a job, it's too hard, not worth it. I think for me, it also gets back to one of the founding metaphors that we've used to think about ethics at the Ethics Center, which is a paraphrase by uh, somebody with a BR in front of his name, a brother of all things. Brother David Steindl Rass paraphrased, ethics is how we behave when we decide we belong together. And what I'm hearing is that there may not be a lot of belonging together in the rough and tumble of the chart note completion and our to-do list tasks. So how can we start to foster that community where that moral activity starts to emerge from? And I think that that's a really, it's a siren song for where we need to go in healthcare today. Thank you for that, Dr. Hodges. You bet. A last question, comment? Well, how about we show our appreciation to Dr. Hodges? Thank you.